Bilderbeck has calculated how long we have got until Martians take over the entire world. If the A-bomb fails, that is. The Martians can conquer the Earth in six days. The same number of days it took to create it. I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. We want a man in black. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the future of war. Resistance is futile. Yes, a Jedi's strength flows from the Force. But beware of the dark side. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. This is a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, David. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is uh, Reach Cold, and you're listening to Trex and Sci-Fi. What's happening, everybody? This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Trex in Sci-Fi, episode 515 for Sunday. November 30th, 2014. I'm back this week with another classic science fiction movie. This week, I'm going to take a look at one of the first alien invasion movies. It's The War of the Worlds from 1953. It stars Gene Barry, Anne Robinson, and Les Tremaine. Before I get into this week's podcast, I'd like to thank Rico for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed. With that said, I'm going to play the prologue and main title theme to this movie. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'll be back with some movie information, and then I'll get into the movie. war and for the first time in the history of man, nations combined to fight against nations using the crude weapons of those days. The Second World War involved every continent on the globe, and men turned to science for new devices of warfare, which reached an unparalleled peak in their capacity for destruction. And now, fought with the terrible weapons of super science, menacing all mankind and every creature on earth, comes the War of the Worlds.
The War of the Worlds was based on H.G. Wells' classic novel of the same name. It was released August 26, 1953. It has a running time of 85 minutes. The screenplay was written by Barry Lyndon. The music was written and composed by Leith Stevens. The movie was directed by Byron Haskin. He was born Byron Conrad Haskin in Portland, Oregon on April 22, 1899. He was an American film and television director. He is remembered today for directing The War of the Worlds, one of many films where he teamed up with producer George Powell. In his early career, he was a special effects artist with a number of credits on Warner Brothers Films, eventually becoming the head of the studio's special effects department. During his tenure there, he earned three Oscar nominations for his effects work and was even recognized with a scientific and technical award citation for developing a rear projection system useful in effects photography. In the late 1940s, he turned to directing Helming Treasure Island, one of Walt Disney's first live-action features. Following the War of the Worlds, he continued his collaboration with George Powell with The Naked Jungle, Conquest of Space, and The Power. His other significant film is a science fiction adventure, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, released in 1964. Haskin also worked as a cinematographer and a producer. His career in television included directing six episodes of The Outer Limits, including two of my favorites, The Architects of Fear and Demon with the Glass Hand. He also co-produced the original Star Trek pilot episode, The Cage. He passed away on April 16, 1984, at the age of 84. George Powell was the producer on this movie. He was a Hungarian-born animator, film director, and producer. He was born Gheorghe Powell Mark Zinkast in Hungary on February 1, 1908. He graduated from the Budapest Academy of Arts in 1928. From 1928 to 1931, he made films for Hunia Films of Budapest. In 1931, he married Elizabeth Grandjean and moved to Berlin, where he founded Trick Film Studios. During this time, he patented Pal Doll, known as Puppet Tunes in the United States. In 1933, he worked in Prague, and in 1934, he made a film advertisement in his hotel room in Paris and was invited by Phillips to make two more short ads. He started to use Paldol techniques in Eindhoven in a former butchery and then a villa studio. He left Germany as the Nazis came to power. He made five films before 1939 for the British company Horlicks Malted Milk. In December of that year, he immigrated from Europe to the United States and began to work for Paramount Pictures. At this time, his friend Walter Lanz, creator of Woody Woodpecker, helped him obtain his American citizenship. As an animator, he made the Puppet Tunes series in the 1940s, which led him to being awarded an honorary Oscar in 1943 for the development of novel methods and techniques in the production of short subjects known as Puppet Tunes. Powell then switched to live-action filmmaking with The Great Rupert. He will be best remembered as the producer of several science fiction and fantasy films in the 1950s and 1960s, such as When Worlds Collide, Conquest of Space, and The Time Machine. He himself directed Tom Thumb, The Time Machine, The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm, and The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. He has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and he passed away May 2nd, 1980, at the age of 72. Now let's talk about the stars of this movie. Gene Berry played Dr. Clayton Forrester. He was an American stage, film, and television actor. 
He was born Eugene Glass in New York City on June 14, 1919. He made his Broadway debut in 1942 in the play The New Moon. In 1951, he was hired for his first movie, in the role of Dr. Frank Edison in The Atomic City. The next year, he was cast as Dr. Clayton Forrester in this movie, The War of the Worlds. He would go on to have leading roles in three popular television shows, Bat Masterson, Burke's Law, and The Name of the Game. He would also play the villain in Prescription Murder, the two-hour pilot episode of the television series Columbo. He will best be remembered for his leading roles in Atomic City, The War of the Worlds, and his television roles as Bat Masterson and Amos Burke. Gene Barry has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He passed away on December 9, 2009, at the age of 90. Next up is Anne Robinson. She played Sylvia Van Buren. She was an American actress and stunt horse rider. She was born in Hollywood, California, on May 25, 1929. She was an accomplished writer, which led to her first professional work in Hollywood as a stunt writer. The War of the Worlds was her first leading role. Her career as a leading lady ended in 1957 when she eloped to Mexico to marry matador Jaime Bravo. They have two sons, Jaime Bravo Jr. and Esteban. The couple divorced 10 years later in 1967. She would go on to do guest spots on lots of television shows during the 1950s and 60s. Les Tremaine played General Mann. He was a radio, film, and television actor. He was born Lester Tremaine in London, England on April 16, 1913. He was four years old when his family moved to Chicago, Illinois, where he began in community theater. He danced as a vaudeville performer and worked as an amusement park barker. He began working in radio when he was 17 years old. During the 1930s and 1940s, he was heard in as many as 45 shows a week. He was once named one of the three most distinctive voices on American radio, the other two being Bing Crosby and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Some of his film credits are A Man Called Peter, The Racket, The Angry Red Planet, Say One For Me, and North by Northwest. He kept busy in television through the 1980s with acting roles and voiceover work. He appeared on the Saturday morning television show Shazam. It was based on the DC comic superhero Captain Marvel. He played the role of mentor to the show's protagonist, Billy Baston. He was elected to the National Radio Hall of Fame in 1995 for doing more than 30,000 radio broadcasts. He passed away on December 19, 2003 at the age of 90. I have a question for everyone who's listening to the podcast right now that's over 50 years old. Is it just me, or does Lester Main look like Dr. Benton Quest? And that's all I have for movie information. So now let's get into the movie. The movie begins with a series of colored matte paintings of the planets of our solar system. Sir Cedric Hardwick narrates a tour of our solar system as seen through the eyes of the Martians. No one would have believed in the middle of the 20th century that human affairs were being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's. Yet, across the gulf of space on the planet Mars, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded our Earth with envious eyes, slowly and surely drawing their plans against us. Mars is more than 140 million miles from the sun. 
and for centuries it has been in the last stages of exhaustion. At night, temperatures dropped far below zero, even at its equator. The inhabitants of this dying planet looked across space with instruments and intelligences of which we have scarcely dreamed, searching for another world which they could migrate. They could not go to Pluto, outermost of all planets, and so cold that its atmosphere lies frozen on its surface. They couldn't go to Neptune or Uranus, twin worlds in eternal night and perpetual cold both surrounded by an unbreathable atmosphere of methane gas and ammonia vapor. The Martians considered Saturn an attractive world with its many moons and beautiful rings of cosmic dust, but its temperature is close to 270 degrees below zero, and ice lies 15,000 miles deep on its surface. Their nearest world was giant Jupiter, where there are titanic cliffs of lava and ice with hydrogen flaming at the tops, where the atmospheric pressure is terrible, thousands of pounds to the square inch. They couldn't go there, nor could they go to Mercury, nearest planet to the sun. It has no air, and the temperature at its equator is that of molten lead. Of all the worlds that the intelligences on Mars could see and study, only our own warm earth was green with vegetation, bright with water, and possessed a cloudy atmosphere eloquent of fertility. It did not occur to mankind that a swift fate might be hanging over us, or that from the blackness of outer space we were being scrutinized and studied, until the time of our nearest approach to the orbit of Mars during a pleasant summer season, in the next scene of the movie, we see a large fiery object streak across the sky and impact near the small town of Linda Rosa. Is that a fireball or something? Boy, that's big. Maybe it's a comet. Wonder where it lit. Miles away, I bet you. Hey, let's go find it, huh? It probably okay. dropped halfway to Pomona. Oh, who's nearer than that? I'm going to see. Who's coming? Dr. Clayton Forrester, a scientist and professor at Pacific Tech, is fishing nearby with some colleagues when the object crashes near the town. He decides to drive to the impact site to take a look at the object. At the impact site, he meets Sylvia Van Buren. I don't understand why a meteor that size didn't make a bigger crater. Oh, it hit sideways and skidded in. At least that's what I think. I don't really know. But the ranger said a scientist is coming from Pacific Tech. He'll tell us. Clayton Forrester, ever hear of him? What's that fellow trying to do over there? Dig it out? He's top man in astro and nuclear physics. He knows all about meteors. You seem to know all about him. Well, I did a thesis on modern scientists, working for my master's degree. Did it do you any good? Why, sure. I got it. Say, do you have a match? No, I'm sorry. I don't smoke. Forrester's the man behind the new atomic engines. They had him on the cover of Time. You know, you've got to rate to get that. Nah, he isn't that good. Well, now, how can you say that when you don't even know him? Oh, I do know him slightly. Oh, what's he like? Well, he's like, uh... Oh, well, you certainly don't look like yourself in that get-up, Dr. Forrester. But I'm happy to meet you anyway. 
I'm Sylvia Van Buren. I teach library science over at USC. I didn't know how to stop you. Well, I might have recognized you without the beard, and you didn't wear glasses on the time cover. Oh, they're really for long distance. When I want to look at something close, I take them off. The object is too hot to examine, so Dr. Forrester decides to spend the night in Linda Rosa and return to the gully in the morning after the object has cooled down. Sylvia and her uncle, Pastor Matthew Collins, offer Dr. Forrester their home and invite him to a square dance. Later that evening, Dr. Forrester and Sylvia are enjoying themselves at the square dance. At the same time, the three local men who have been assigned to watch the object are startled when a previously hidden hatch unscrews and falls away. A metallic probe with a pulsating red eye supported by a long neck emerges from the top of the object. The three men approach the probe, waving a white flag. The probe studies the men for a few seconds, then blasts them with a heat ray, vaporizing them. Hey! It's moving! It's a bomb. It don't go off last night. Maybe it's going to go off now, huh? It's an enemy sneak attack. Let's get out of here. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Bombs don't unscrew. It's no meteor, that's for sure. Darnest thing I ever saw. The way that's unscrewing. Must be somebody in there. Who? Where'd you think they come from? How would I know? They're in some place. Mars is near the Earth right now. Happens every 18, 20 years, they say. From Mars. What do you think? Maybe these are not men. Not like us. Everything human doesn't have to look like you and me. If it's men from Mars, we ought to let them know we're friendly. Don't fool around with something when you don't know what it is. We'd be the first to make contact with them. See? We'd be in all the papers. How about that? We could show them we're friendly, huh? Uh, walk out there with a white flag. Hey, I, I, I got an old sugar sack in my car. What are we going to say to them? Welcome to California. Come on. Understand us? We're talking sign language. They'll understand us, all right. Sure. Sure? Everybody understands when you wave the white flag, you want to be friends? Hey there! Open up! Come on out! We're friends! Hey, that's right! We welcome you! We're friends! Yeah! At the same moment the men are destroyed by the heat ray, the town's power goes out. 
Dr. Forrester notices that his and other people's wristwatches have stopped at the same time. Dr. Forrester determines that everything has become magnetized. He observes the sheriff's compass, which now points towards the object in the gully instead of magnetic north. The sheriff, his deputy, and Dr. Forrester drive up to the gully to investigate. As they get out of the car, they are immediately targeted by the probe. The deputy sees the probe and races off in the patrol car, leaving Dr. Forrester and the sheriff behind. The sheriff and Dr. Forrester dive behind some rocks as the probe destroys the deputy and the patrol car. The sheriff and Dr. Forrester survive the attack and notify the military. More reports come in that other meteorite ships are landing throughout the world. The Marines are called in and they surround the gully. They bring in troops, tanks, and big guns. General Mann comes from Washington, D.C. to assess the situation. He meets with Colonel Hefner and Dr. Forrester. Everyone has been alerted. As you were. General Mann, I was told to expect you, sir. I'm Colonel Hefner. I'm here to make up a report. Not to interfere with the operations you've set up. You're still in command. Clayton Forrester. I haven't seen you since Oak Ridge. Good to see you, General. Well, this is Pastor Collins. Sheriff Pagani, head of local control. Sure, General. Miss Van Buren. Miss Van Buren. How do you do, General? Would you care for some coffee? Thank you. General Mann's in charge of intelligence for the Pacific Senior area. Number seven now hooking up. That's their position. Well, you've certainly got them surrounded. I suppose they've neutralized all communications here. Not all, sir. Radio's out, but our field phones are okay so far. Well, they'll go the minute there's another heat ray. Cylinder reported down by Huntington Beach. That's a job for the Navy. Any news from abroad? Washington is in constant touch with the military of other nations. Apparently, they're coming down all over. South America. Santiago has two cylinders. They're outside London. They're in Naples. We've got them between here and Fresno. Outside Sacramento, two on Long Island. They're just coming down at random. No. According to information from foreign sources, they're working to some kind of a plan. Now, what it may be isn't clear yet, simply because once they begin to move, no more news comes out of that area. We've been getting reports of destruction, massacre. Here's an instance. Town of San Julian, south of Bordeaux, wiped out by ray of undetermined nature. Local reports say nothing remains. Nothing remains. What are you making that? All we've seen is the heat ray they use. Well, some of our newest weapons are in here. We want to be sure to stop them. We will, sir. Now, from the data, from that picture the Air Force took earlier tonight, what we've got out there is the original pilot ship. On the basis of its observations, the others were guided down. Pattern-wise, one lands, then two, making groups of threes joined magnetically. Is that possible? If they do it, it is. My orders are not to go into action unless they move out of the shelter of that gully. Well, meanwhile, we'll have a chance to observe them. Now, this is the only place we've had time to surround them with sufficient force to contain them. What happens here will be a guide to all other operations. Now, the minute action begins and a pattern of defense develops, I'll get my report to Washington. You've deployed your forces well. Thank you, sir. If they start anything, we can blast them right off the earth. Mortar company. All units, set and ready. 75, all units, set and ready. They'll probably move at dawn. Three Martian war machines rise from the gully and slowly advance toward the command post. Pastor Collin approaches the Martian war machines reciting Psalms 23 with his Bible in his hand as a sign of peace and goodwill. They vaporize him immediately. 
Who's that? What's he think he's doing? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It's seen him. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. The Marines open fire immediately with everything they have, but each Martian war machine is protected by an impenetrable force field. The Martians use both their heat ray and pulsating skeleton ray to send the Marines in full retreat. General Mann returns to Los Angeles to inform the city leaders and reporters that the Martians are on their way to Los Angeles. Hold it right there, General, please. You're the gentleman I asked to come here. General Mann, what do you what? think of this situation? Is it your opinion the Army can hold them? All right, I've got guns and equipment going out there all night. Come on, break it up. The way he's hedging, maybe the Army didn't hold him. I've seen news off the Pacific cables. Sydney, Australia, Penang, Rangoon, India. From what's coming through, nobody stopped him yet. I want to know if the city must be evacuated. We're ready. Lots of people have already moved out. We mobilize emergency cars and buses in the yards. The Red Cross is standing by. Now, for your information, the enemy is 25 or 30 miles outside Los Angeles. Not down in full force yet, but developing. It can happen any minute. The crisis will come if they move toward the metropolitan area. Washington's we've got on to... the line, sir. General Mann. I'd say our effective losses were nearly 60% men, 90% material. Well, the jets went in, but not one of them came out. I watched high-level bombers drop everything they carried. They were knocked out of the sky and their bombs did nothing. Nothing was effective against them. Yes, they have some sort of electronic umbrella. It's quite impenetrable. Dr. Forrester believes they generate atomic force without the heavy screening we use. That's where they get the power for their rays. Very well, sir. Call Victorville. Tell him I want the fastest plane they've got. You'll get all further instructions from 6th Army Command. Now I'll make a statement to those reporters. All right. All right, fellas. General, we'll see you now. General, we heard that Dr. Clayton Forrester was out there with you. What's he think about this? Ask him. He's back at Pacific Tech. No, he's not. We tried to get him there. During the initial Martian attack, Dr. Forrester and Sylvia hop in a military spotter plane and fly away from the advancing Martian war machines. While trying to avoid the jets and the Martian war machines, they crash land near a farmhouse. They hide in the farmhouse, but are trapped when another meteorite ship comes crashing down and slides into the farmhouse. They are now trapped inside the farmhouse. The Martians send an electronic eye on a flexible cable into the house, but it fails to notice them. The probe would later return and find them. Dr. Forrester saves the day by cutting the head off of the probe with an axe. The Martian war machine recoils the cable and sends in one of the crew to investigate them. The Martian sneaks up behind Sylvia and touches her on the shoulder. She screams and Dr. Forrester throws an axe at it and the Martian runs away screaming. He picks up the electronic eye and wraps it up in a scarf. They escape the farmhouse just as the Martians destroy it. The Martians had calculated their descent upon our earth with amazing perfection and subtlety. 
As more of their cylinders came from the mysterious depths of space, their war machines, awesome in their power and complexity, created a wave of fear which swept into all corners of the world. In every country, government officials met in desperate conclave, seeking ways to coordinate their defenses with those of other nations. The government of India, driven from New Delhi, met in a railroad coach, while massive Hindu populations streamed for the imagined safety of the faraway Himalayas. The redoubtable Finnish and Turkish armies, Chinese battalions and Bolivians worked and fought furiously. Every effort against the tremendous power of their otherworld antagonists ended in the same frantic rout. As the Martians burned fields and forests and great cities fell before them, huge populations were driven from their homes. The stream of flight rose swiftly to a torrent. It became a giant stampede without order and without goal. It was the beginning of the rout of civilization the massacre of humanity. A great silence fell over half of Europe as all communication was disrupted. When the last wire photo out of Paris reached the French cabinet exiled in Strasbourg, they hit upon the idea of using superspeed jets as couriers. Stripped of armament and loaded with extra fuel, these planes maintain connection with the Scandinavian countries, North Africa, the United States, and especially with England. It was plain the Martians appreciated the strategic significance of the British Isles. The people of Britain met the invaders magnificently, but it was unavailing. As the Martians swept northward toward London, the British cabinet stayed in session, coordinating every item of information that could be gathered passing it on to the United Nations in New York. From there, the news was forwarded to Washington, because here was the only remaining unassailed strategic point. 48 North. Dr. Forrester and Sylvia find an abandoned truck and make it back to Pacific Tech. Dr. Forrester tells his colleagues about how impervious the Martian defenses were. They examine the electronic eye and some of the Martian blood left on the scarf. After examining the Martian blood, they find Martians to be primitive beings. Forrester, everybody's been looking for you. I know. We've walked halfway from Corona. Finally found an abandoned truck. This is Miss Van Buren, Dr. Grotsman, Dr. Pryor, yeah. James, Bilderbeck. What's this I hear about the A-bomb? We've been assigned to special detail. We're going in right afterwards to study its effect. We're leaving in half an hour. What's that? King-size fish eye? This is an electronic eye. The Martians model it after their own eye. They use it the way we use a periscope. It'll tell us a lot about their metals and alloys. If this is actually a lens, we can find out about their optics. Interesting. Very interesting. And this? The blood of a Martian. I don't remember ever seeing blood crystals as anemic as these. They may be mental giants. But by our standards, physically, they must be very primitive. Isn't it curious how everything about them seems to be in threes? Their eyes have three lenses, three distinct pupils. Strong light shocks them. They're not accustomed to it. Sunlight on Mars is approximately half as strong as we get it. Add their clouds and dust, it amounts to no more than uh, our twilight. Washington decides to drop the A-bomb via the 
flying wing, on the original Martian war machines. Even the A-bomb has no effect on the Martian protective force fields. The Martians continue to advance on Los Angeles. The government orders the immediate evacuation of Los Angeles. Dr. Forrester and his fellow scientists are told to pack their equipment and supplies and head for the Rocky Mountains, where they will work on a defense against the Martian war machines. It didn't stop them. Guns, tanks, bombs, they're like toys against them. It'll end only one way. We're beaten. No. Not yet. Washington issued orders. In event the A-bomb failed, evacuate all cities in danger of attack. They'll be moving on Los Angeles now. We'll establish a line and fight them all the way back to the mountains. Our best hope lies in what you people can develop to help us. All right, on the double. Get me back. Six days, you said. Six days. We'll stamp the city flat. Take all our instruments and establish a base laboratory in the Rocky Mountains. It'll give us time to search out some weakness in the Martians. Forlorn hope. There is a chance we may get a lead from that anemic blood. You mean by some biological approach? We know now that we can't beat their machines. We've got to beat them. The scientists and their equipment are packed in buses and trucks. Before they can leave the city, they are separated and attacked by a mob of people. The trucks are stolen, and their equipment is wrecked. Dr. Forrester searches frantically for Sylvia. He remembers that Sylvia said that she was once lost, and her Uncle Matthew found her in a church. So he goes from church to church looking for her. He eventually finds her in a church with other refugees. As the Martian war machines approach the church, they begin to lose power and crash into the buildings. The Martians had no resistance to the bacteria in our atmosphere to which we have long since become immune. Once they had breathed our air, germs which no longer affect us began to kill them. The end came swiftly. All over the world their machines began to stop and fall. After all that men could do had failed, the Martians were destroyed and humanity was saved by the littlest things which God in his wisdom had put upon this earth. Now it's time for some movie trivia. Tracy Bolio's character in Mystery Science Theater 3000 was named after Dr. Forrester from The War of the Worlds as a tribute to the movie and the genre. Lee Marvin was offered the role of Dr. Clayton Forrester. Wow, I really don't know how that would have turned out. Cecil B. DeMille was asked to do the voice of the narrator, but declined. The estate of Ace G. Wells was so pleased with the movie, it offered George Powell his choice of any other Wells property. He chose the time machine. Albert Nozaki based his designs of the Martian war machines in the shape and movements of manta rays, cobras, and swans. I totally see that. The Martian war machines would be used again as alien ships in the movie Robinson Crusoe on Mars. I know Rico knows that. Cecil B. DeMille, Ray Harryhausen, and Alfred Hitchcock all wanted to direct this movie. If you look closely, you can see Woody Woodpecker in one of the trees when the first Martian cylinder flies over the forest in the beginning of the movie. Gene Barry and Ann Robinson have roles in the 2005 remake of The War of the Worlds as Dakota Fanning's grandparents. 
The War of the World was nominated for three Academy Awards, Best Sound, Best Editing, and Special Effects. It would go on to win the Academy Award for Special Effects. It also won a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation in 1954. In 1988, a sequel to the movie was made into a television series. Anne Robinson reprised her role as Sylvia Van Buren. And that's all I have for trivia. So here are my comments about the movie. I watched the 2005 Special Collector's Edition DVD release. It comes with loads of features. First, it comes with two audio commentaries, one with Anne Robinson and Gene Barry, and another one with uh, film director Joe Dante, film historian Bob Burns, and author Bill Warren. He wrote a book called Keep Watching the Skies. If you like science fiction movies of the 1950s, you got to have this book. Matter of fact, I own this book. It's a great resource. There's also two documentaries. One, The Sky is Falling, The Making of the War of the Worlds, which is really good. They got a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. And uh, there's a funny story about there's a scene in the movie where the Martian touches Sylvie on her shoulder and Dr. Forrester throws an axe at it. And then they show the monster running away. Well, actually, it was a, a stunt guy in a Martian suit and he was on a dolly and they pulled the dolly so fast that he almost fell off of it. If you watch the movie, you can see him almost falling off of it. So they got stories like this and it's really, really cool. The next documentary is H.G. Wells, The Father of Science Fiction. That's very cool as well. They also have the 1938 radio broadcast of The War of the Worlds and it comes with the original theatrical trailer. This is one of my favorite science fiction movies. The picture and sound quality of this movie are excellent. This movie looks and sounds great to be 60 years old. I love the special effects in this movie. I like practical effects. I'm not really into CG. CGI looks really good, but I like the way they used to do it. You know, they used a lot of matte paintings in this movie and uh, miniatures. It's really hard to believe that this movie was shot on a soundstage. The only parts that were shot outside were the scenes when they had the um, uh, Arizona National Guard with the tanks on the outside. That's it. Everything else was shot in a soundstage. The Martian war machines, wow, they are absolutely gorgeous. This Al Albert Nozaki did a great job on their design. I mean, I see a manta ray and a cobra and a swan just by looking at it. And he mixed them all together and they look so alien, but they're so awesome. The original ones they built, it's a shame nobody got a hold of them and they were scrapped at a sale. And that's a bummer because that's, that's movie history right there. I think the cast did a great job. I like Gene Barry's character from where he was really interested in seeing the Martians as a scientist. And then once he seen the firepower that they had, man, he was just scared of them, terrified. Um, Les Tremaine is Les Tremaine and Anne Robinson did what she was supposed to do. So, But other than that, it's a great movie. And there's a lot of character actors in this movie. They're the, one of the guys in the beginning of the movie, that one of the townspeople, he's from Green Acres. And um, there's a bunch of guys, If you people in that movie, you'll look and you'll see them, and they've been in other science fiction movies. Um, I do want to make a comparison between the 1953 movie and the 2005 movie and the novel. First of all, I want to say I like both versions of the movie. They're both great. There's been enough time in between the two movies where they don't really compete. They're two totally different movies, and they're both great. I think the 2000 ver 2005 version is closer to the original novel. In the novel, 
the Martians actually consume us as well as take over our planet. And we would never see that in a 1950s movie. Um, in the 2005 version, the Martian machines have legs, not electronic beams. The electronic beams are cool, but I really like the mechanical war machines. They look cool. Um, and I would really like to see this movie done in the period that it was made back in the turn of the past century. Because it'd be a really, really cool steampunk movie. Um, but it would probably be cost a whole bunch because... You, because period pieces cost money, and then science fiction movies would cost money, so I doubt if that ever will be made, but I would like to see it like that. If you haven't seen this movie, do yourself a favor and pick it up. It's really cheap. You can pick it up on Amazon for five bucks. Uh, make sure you get the special collector's edition. It has all the bonus features. I would recommend this movie to all science fiction fans. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. On a scale from one to ten, I'll give this movie a 10 out of 10. And those are my comments about this movie. Before I wrap up this week's podcast, I'd like to thank Rico again for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you another classic science fiction movie. I'd also like to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Take care, everyone. This is M5 signing off. Trucks in Sunlight. Let me bring you down.